Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the FSR Policy Briefcase with me, James Kneebone, and me, Leo, Leonardo Meus. This is a new podcast series from the Florence School of Regulation, where we discuss a key topical issue in the world of European policy and regulation through the lens of our most recent policy brief, which, for those not familiar, are our format to deliver concise and focused policy messages. The policy briefcase will be released each month, guest featuring an author from the policy brief in question, as well as, of course, myself and Leo, who will be your regular hosts. We intend to use the policy briefs as the basis for a wider discussion on these kinds of topical issues, and therefore we will take comments and questions from listeners, as well as sharing our own views where appropriate. As I said, each episode will feature a different guest author, but the first episode is just the two of us, as the lead author of this week's policy brief is Leo himself. Although, of course, several other FSR researchers contributed to this piece, namely Ilaria Conti, Lucila Almeida, Jean-Michel Glachant, Lee Hancher, Max Munchmeyer, Andrus Pebags, and Alberto Potochnik. A star-studded lineup of authors like this could only be assembled for an important and wide-reaching paper. In this case, it was Energy Policy Ideas for the Next Commission. Referring, of course, to the end of this European Commission mandate, which began in 2019, and will be concluded this year, to be replaced by a new College of Commissioners after the European elections in June. So, Leo, I have some questions about the paper, but would you like to first give a quick introduction? Yeah, thank you, James. So I think this is a bit of an unusual policy brief because normally I think we stay within the comfort zone of our own expertise and we focus on one legislative file or one issue where we think we can add um, some advice or some recommendations. But as you said, we have the elections coming up and that's a moment to zoom out, right? To take stock of what happened, but also to look forward. So we felt we had to be part of that conversation. Um, And as you said, that's why you could not rely on one or a small team of people. We really had to engage uh, many colleagues and beyond the authors, many others uh, contributed. And also we put up a process that was quite uh, unusual, I would say. So we have these what we call our policy advisory council twice a year where we give our stakeholders an update of our research. And this time we said, let's turn it around and let's create a brainstorm session with some of these stakeholders and colleagues to see um, if we could come up with some ideas for the next commission. Uh, And that was really nice. We were outside here in June, good weather. Uh, We had lots of post-its and we organized these post-its. We clustered them in some main ideas. And then somebody had to start uh, writing that. So um, over the summer, we then tried to write it down. We had many, many feedback rounds because everybody felt quite strong (laughs) about this topic, rightfully so. Um, And then that already led us to October where we then, I first thought to have a workshop to start disseminating the work, but then we were still drafting, so we were so close to the workshop that we said, you know what, let's wait with the publication till after that workshop, and I'm happy we did that, because even in that last fine-tuning, we still got some, some good feedback. Then in November, we had the opportunity to present the brief to the incoming Belgian presidency of the council. That was thanks to the EY president and Egmont Institute, Um, And that was also very interesting. And we hope in the coming months we continue to be part of that conversation because many people are thinking about what the next commission could do. Um, Also, um, we realized that this brief was a kind of a work plan for us because we realized many of these ideas uh, deserve more research and more thinking. Um, so, and it, it turned out to be useful also to schedule our, our research and our workshops in the coming months. We have on Friday 
a workshop on governance. We will have then a few weeks later on offshore. And in April, probably we do a stock taking exercise on the Green Deal. So yeah, it's it's uh, has been a really interesting exercise. Yeah, and I think for exactly this reason, it feels like the right place to start for this podcast series, right? Because it's sort of this kind of framing uh, kind of paper. And actually, I remember this day in June that you mentioned where we were outside and uh, sort of brainstorming. And if I remember correctly, I was in the session where this um, this notion about the NECPs and taking a, a sort of renewed focus on them was brought up, I think, by, by Andres. Um, and in the paper itself, one of the issues that you raise is basically you talk about the sort of widening gaps between the European ambitions and the translation of those to the national level, so specifically via the NECPs or the National Energy and Climate Plans. And you suggest that member states could be made more accountable perhaps via better tracking and monitoring via central authority, and this would follow a sort of EU energy and climate plan, right? You also propose linking funding to the achievement of those targets, for example, Next Generation EU or cohesion funds. Essentially, those funds could be withheld for failure to achieve the targeted levels. So this could certainly be a big incentive to meet the targets, but without, com- without increased uh, capacity building or a burden sharing mechanism, it could just be punitive for those countries with limited room for maneuver, right? So particularly when you consider that the level of European ambition has increased increased quite aggressively since 2020. Particularly, I would also reflect on the fact that a lot of the sort of low-hanging fruit of decarbonisation was done by 2020, right? So in that context, you know, it sort of provokes the question, is it realistic to expect more from the same resources? Is it an issue of motivation? Or ultimately, would it be a case of having to implement, you know, both the measures in parallel, i.e. capacity building and stronger incentives and disincentives? Yeah. So capacity building, just to clarify, what we had in mind is the fact that in the current commission, we introduced so much new regulation, really um, very important regulatory frameworks that still have implementation components, right? Some of it is due to acts that still have to be done at the European level, but a lot of it is also at national level. So in Brussels, people are saying, you know what, the next commission, hopefully it could be maybe even Ursula von der Leyen again, because then at least we are sure that the next commission might focus on implementation, implementation, implementation. Um, And that implementation, their capacity building is needed because we notice that many ministries, national administrations are struggling to keep up. Um, We notice that as experts as well. Even for us, it's really hard to keep up. So for me, capacity building is is really there to, to to make sure that ministries have the people and the resources and hopefully also... Um, the help of experts uh, to do that implementation. Then the gap is maybe something else. Uh, There maybe it is partly willingness and partly um, an issue. So it's easier to agree um, altogether member states on an EU target than to agree on what that means on your national um, commitment to invest. And um, there, indeed, um, we are a bit worried. Um, and uh, that, yeah, not only because of what we see in those plans, but also what we see in the implementation of the plans, right? Because the plan is just uh, one thing. You also need to check what is happening, really, in terms of implementation. Yeah, indeed. And on that point about burden sharing, I mean, is it too late to introduce a mechanism like this to help member states achieve these European goals? I mean, I know the final plans are due already by the end of June this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I, I, th- I think you checked the numbers for me, right? Maybe we can already share the numbers because yeah. that was quite new information. Uh. Yeah, so as per the latest assessment, which you know at the point of recording includes an assessment of 21 of the member states, I think there are a few others who have submitted, but, but too late for final assessment. 
And at the moment, we are four percentage points short of the greenhouse gas emissions reduction target, so 51% uh, rather than 55. We are 6.2 percentage points short on um, effort-sharing sectors compared to the 40% target. We're sort of between 40 to 50 million tons of CO2 equivalent short on the 310 million ton target under the LULUCF. Um, and for renewable energy, as far as that's regarded, we're sort of around 39% targeted deployment in the mix by 2030 compared to a 42.5% target. And energy efficiency is really far off. This is about 6% uh, as per the current targets and needs to hit 12% by 2030. So on some of them, the EU is actually relatively close, right? But, it, you know, in, in some cases, only a few percentage points. But, you know, do you think that the reforms you propose could already be implemented in time to get us to that? 2030. I know, like in, in the case of the 202020 targets, for example, it was looking for the for a long time as if we wouldn't make it, right? But right at the last moment, and I think maybe you could explain a little bit why, yeah. uh, we did just get over the line. Yeah. So, I mean, countries did a lot of efforts to reach the 2020 targets, yeah. but at the last moment, we also had the crisis, which lowered demand a little bit and which helped also a little bit. So, um, and and I think that's also good to to remind uh, people that. That financial crisis in 2009 was also a moment where people felt in the conversations, the early conversations on what should we do for 2030, that the ambitions lowered a little bit. And I think that's when this burden sharing we had for 2020 was a bit abandoned and when this idea of these national energy and climate plans emerged. Yeah. Like, let's leave member states a bit more free in how they achieve the big EU targets and that's and in that freedom also maybe consider interactions between different targets because when we did for instance the burden sharing um, in the past for 2020 we for instance on renewables maybe some country might be willing to do less on the renewables but more on something else so the idea of these plans was also you know let's see which countries are willing to overperform in some areas and then maybe underperform in others but as long as it all adds up yeah. it's it's okay but at the same time, there was also a bit of worry, right? If you give that freedom to member states, it might be good, but it might also be bad in the sense that it might easily lead to us not achieving um, our ambitions. Um, and then the numbers you quote is, we could look at it in two ways. It's not as bad as we, it might have been, right? It could have been worse, but especially as you said on energy efficiency, only half is really yeah. problematic, right? Um, and also, I think people are worried because these pledges, in a way, yeah, how, how much policy is already in place and how much budget has already been earmarked yeah. to make it credible that countries would actually reach these pledges, right? Yeah. That's also why uh, we're a bit worried. Um, on your other question on could we still go back to burden sharing on some of these individual targets like renewables? Well, we're not that far <laughs> because the current legislation already includes indicative targets. Right. So... Yeah, if we somehow, uh, we already have the reference, so if we somehow find ways like linking it to funding, uh, as you said in the beginning, uh, one of our ideas, you make it more binding than it currently is. Um, and that was also foreseen. So you already have uh, people thinking of next steps. Next steps is to maybe introduce stronger measures to make sure we, we reach our EU target. So that's already happening in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And were you worried, I mean, just fundamentally about the fact that only 21 of the member states managed to get their plans in and submitted in time and, uh, and assessed in a timely manner. I mean, is that we'll get onto it a bit later in the conversation, but is this issue about, 
you know, administrative capacity and compliance with these kind of general frameworks something problematic in principle, which sort of provokes this idea that you might want to tie it to funding to make these things, you know, a bit more important. It also wasn't widely published in the media. I don't feel like I saw that much reporting at the time about the NECPs and, you know, the renewed look. Yeah, yeah I think it's both. Huh? I think we have to help member states. Um, but also make them accountable. <laughs> That's why we really have both uh, as ideas put forward. Eh? It's not only about uh, hitting them for... <laughs> no, no, no. And that came across in the policy brief, yeah. I would say. It was clear that there was a focus on capacity building, and but also a focus on you know ensuring that these things are really taken seriously and that there are consequences, right? Yeah. And there are big funds available in the EU for these kind of renewables projects, decarbonization projects, right? So you want to tie that to the high achievers. I mean, as, as goes the structure of the policy brief, we're going to be jumping around a little bit onto the different points. And next, I'd like to introduce this, this subject on regional tariffs that, that was brought up, right? So I like the idea in principle of introducing these regional tariffs, which would hope, hopefully help to uh, socialize the cost of new network infrastructure, because under the conventional system, it's just sort of a cross-border allocation, which, I mean, at times you could see perhaps as a bit of a blunt instrument that doesn't reflect all of the utility of a new piece of infrastructure, right? Sometimes it's more at the regional level. So we already have this kind of uh, regional component to the risk preparedness plans in the gas sector, for example, where you know storage might be procured across borders and within regions. And I was wondering, were there any kind of particular projects you had in mind when you proposed this idea of regionally socializing the cost of these kind of projects? Yeah. You know gas better than I do, but I know I follow electricity a bit closer. Um, and we have the 10 e regulation, right? Yeah. We already had the idea that we have to get beyond this territorial principle that everybody just pays for the assets that are located on their territory because maybe there are beneficiaries, you know, neighboring countries. Um, so we already had that, but we've sort of, you know, only done it project by project and only in extreme cases where we could clearly identify a third party that benefits that was not directly involved in the project. Very few cases we've also had um, decisions by regulators where these third parties paid part of the cost. But if we look at some of these infrastructure challenges we have beyond before us, like offshore grids, CCS, hydrogen, this is of another complexity in a way. And also we felt that there it's more difficult to go project by project and to have some kind of formula to allocate costs among whoever uh, benefits. So we felt maybe there we could go to the next level of ambition and to say, if I just take the example of offshore grids, um, lots of countries are already looking at these offshore hubs. Sometimes that can even be combined with hydrogen. Um, and then the question is, will we look at them project by project or do we consider this North Sea as a kind of a regional plan? Yeah. Because maybe if we look at that regional plan, more countries will be convinced they benefit. And then more easily you can come to a cost sharing that is maybe a bit more simple yeah. because you don't need to allocate the last euro uh, because you feel if this group of projects gets built, we benefit enough to share a reasonable level of the costs. And then indeed the question is, do we do that regionally? Or do we have to go more for EU? And to the extent that we feel uh, beneficiaries are across whole of Europe, it of course becomes a bit more complicated because more countries can say no. Uh, but at the same time, um, it's to be discussed. So it's an idea we put forward, um, but we do not yet have all the ideas figured out. And that's why one of our workshops is actually exactly on that topic. And I also expect us to come with policy briefs um, that go deeper into that uh, idea. 
when reading the policy brief, this is sort of just like a general takeaway that I felt uh, when, when going over the text was there was a consistent issue raised throughout uh, on data or lack thereof, let's say. I mean, this was true of the NECP stuff, but it, it was also true when you were referring to the crisis, for example. I mean, you made mention of the use of IEA data, for example, frequently in the crisis and the fact that it wasn't ideal, essentially, that Europe was relying on these uh, resources, uh, as useful as they proved to be, of course. I mean, could you elaborate a bit on this vision for what, what you propose as an EU energy agency uh, in the text? So how it might be resourced and perhaps how it might interact with the existing tools and agencies. So I don't know, Eurostat, for example, or the European Environment Agency, which are often promoting these things. Yeah. yeah. Also to be mentioned is that some countries already have energy agencies, sometimes yeah. at a very local level to help people, um, but also sometimes at a national level to support uh, national policymakers. Um, only a few countries have a, a big mandate for these agencies, but in many cases it's sometimes focused on innovation, for instance. Um, the idea is that these agencies can develop more technical knowledge and to really support um, policymakers with information, as you say, but it can be more than information. It can be about policy assessment, impact assessments, and, and recommendations. And that's why we linked it to the um, EU National Energy and Climate Plan. If we would go there to an assessment that is stronger on recommendations, it could be good to have um, an agency uh, supporting that. But also that agency could do other type of things that we have in the brief, um, because in the brief we also talk about this um, Critical Raw Materials Act yeah. and the fact that we don't yet have a lot of technical expertise in analyzing risks related to critical raw materials. The same with risks on industry uh, relocating. Yeah. These are all new issues on which we need to develop more technical competence. And then the question is, in, in the CRM Act, for instance, there is the mentioning of the European Critical Raw Material Board. In the Net Zero Industry Act, there is this idea of a new platform. So instead of having all these platforms and all these boards, maybe some of it can be brought together in a new agency. Yeah. But then the next question, and that connects to one of your previous questions, is if, can we get it all implemented before 2030, <laughs> that it's not too late? Well, that's why we said maybe instead of creating a new agency, another option is the same concept could be used to reinforce ACER. So you could put that, you know, just as a, an additional tasks be given to ACER. Um, and that's another way, right? To, to avoid um, that it takes too much time uh, to, to set this up. Yeah, and that was also a consistent theme throughout, right? You know, like in this, uh, this organization, governance structures, et cetera, et cetera, and whether it's more efficient and more effective to have lots of sort of, you, you might say fragmented, or you might say specialized, different groups working on specific projects, or if you try and amalgamate or, you know, streamline is a, a euphemistic term used. But in, in other ways, if you're in, the, to, to follow this example, you mentioned about ASA, you know, if you're not increasing the capacity of that organization to perform that task, you know, how are you reorganizing in order to do it in the most efficient way? And this is cropping up in the subject of data now, but it will also cross up, crop up later on the issue of network governance, right? So this is maybe something that's a consistent issue that needs a real critical eye uh, going forward, right? And uh, yeah, whilst we're on organizations, I guess we saw DG Reform and, and JRC, the Joint Research Center, crop up several times in the document, which, you know, it makes sense, it's intuitive on the, given that we had such a focus on capacity building, 
But what about the other side of the equation, i.e. reducing the administrative burden, right? So we know that the Commission's long-term competitiveness communication sets a target of reducing burdens associated with reporting requirements by 25% uh, without undermining the policy objectives of the initiative's concern. This is by 2030. Uh, but yeah, this is something I didn't see addressed in the policy brief. So you sort of focus on the other side of the equation, increasing uh, capacity building and uh, streamlining in administration and so on. But yeah, is the, it was the fact that you omitted this point about reducing uh, reporting requirements and such because you feel that the, the NECPs and, and statistical reporting in this area are, are not the appropriate place to make the cuts? Or, yeah, what was the logic here? Yeah, one of the reasons that we said maybe we should have a bit more EU organization around the NECPs is because it could help address the fragmentation of the reporting. So yeah. it is true that many pieces of legislation ask their separate report, and then the idea is that all of that sort of accumulates into that national energy and climate plan. Um, but yeah, it is true that you could see whether we need that fragmented reporting or whether we can immediately go to a more um, EU type of planning. And how it connects with capacity building is also, yeah, is it even necessary that all member states develop their own regulatory impact assessments or could that be more supported, right? Yeah. Um, and then places like GRC are places where modeling can be developed. Um, DG reform can then help to make sure that national administrations can use these type of models uh, or have experts help them um, use these type of models. So I, I do hope we didn't address it uh, you know, explicitly, but I think implicitly some of these ideas we had go in the same direction, you know, reducing the number of entities and maybe also reducing um, the, the fragmentation of, of reporting. Yeah, okay, so it's not this, a case of reducing concretely the obligations required, but more like being more efficient in the organization of the actors that are doing so. Yeah, and that's a nice the, way of saying it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so in a way you do, you do also address that side of the equation, that makes sense. Um, it seemed that one of the policy recommendations that perhaps received the most attention since the policy brief was published, which uh, for listeners' info was just at the end of last year, uh, was this proposal to build a sort of EU networks agency. So again, we're following this line of, uh, of amalgamating, of streamlining, streamlining and um, this amounts to absorbing the various ENSOs and even the ENNOH, so this would be the Network Organization for Hydrogen, as proposed, uh, into one organization. So could you just remind listeners briefly about the general logic behind the proposal and perhaps reflect a bit on the arguments for and against? Yeah, the name we used for that idea was to have an EU energy networks entity, right? Um, and then indeed, the level of controversy increases when you say it could... Um, merge the TSO entities, and but even more if you then say it could merge the TSO and the DSO entities. So maybe that was even going too far, but at least we wanted to, it to be part of the conversation. Before I enter into why we came up with that idea, I, I do want to acknowledge you know, that these existing entities have been extremely valuable and extremely useful. Yeah. Just to Two anecdotes on that. Recently, we, we have a transport area. So in transport sector, they're looking at uh, NSOE or NSOG as a model to consider in transport. So that's already you know showing that yeah, yeah, yeah. it's definitely uh, have, has added a lot of value. Also in the US, to my surprise, I was invited in a seminar together with one of the founders of uh, NSOE to talk about NSOE. And the US was considering, um, shouldn't we have that type of entity? So, I mean, their value in network codes, in many of the integration harmonization we saw in previous years is undeniable. But 
the problem we see for future is that we need more infrastructure. We already talked about it earlier. And the more we invest in billions and billions and billions of infrastructure, the more you want planning of investments to be as neutral as possible, right? And that's where questions emerge because, of course, by nature, and so we plans are a bit more, you know, thinking the future is electric, and 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 so G plans are a bit more thinking um, molecules is the way to go. Um, also, another issue that emerges more and more is this trade-off between network and non-network solutions. If you ask um, a TSO um, to what extent you can avoid network expansion with non-network solutions, I mean, of course, even if they, they try to be neutral, <laughs> the perception will always be that they're not necessarily so neutral. So by merging, we thought we could go beyond what we currently have, which is the fact that they already develop scenarios together, yeah. but really go further in that cooperation of, of joint planning. And then also the question emerges, is that enough? Or should they also become, that merged entity should also become more independent of their members? Yeah. Um, if you make the analogy with Acer, also in Acer, there are a regulate, there is a board of regulators, but for you know the, the agency is not always overruled by the board of regulators. So you could have a board of members of, of TSOs, and the question is how powerful is that board versus um, the rest of the entity, right? Um, and and yeah, so that's really part of the conversation, um, and that's how it emerged. Um, uh, then I also wanted to mention that it's not completely new, that idea, because in the proposal on the gas package, it was already discussed to what extent the DSO entity we have for electricity should include gas yes. or should we have uh, two separate entities. Um, also, another thing to mention is that the old idea that always emerges is the ISO, right? That's another way of dealing with it. So, but I think that would be more dramatic. If you really want um, you know, to, to disconnect system operation and system planning from the ownership, it's about creating a new type of company, an ISO company, which has been done in some countries. But if we would go down that route, it would take us much longer to achieve, I think, um, the same objectives. Sorry, could you maybe just explain the notion of an ISO just briefly to a listeners who might not be yeah. so deep in the subject? So a TSO is a, an acronym for Transmission System Operator, yeah. but it doesn't say fully what it is, because what it is is uh, more than a system operator. It's also an entity that owns the network. Sure. So then, of course, if you ask that entity how much network we need to build, if that entity can also own it, there might be a conflict of interest there. While if you say, no, we separate the ownership from the operation and the planning, um, the planner is not going to own the network. So in that sense, should normally be more neutral. Uh, but that it creates other issues. That's why in Europe, we've never went down the ISO route, yeah. except in a few countries. Um, but every time we have a conversation on, should we make network planning more independent? Um, the ISO comes back, right? Yeah. That's why we thought to refresh that debate, instead of putting the ISO again on the table, we said maybe we can achieve something similar in an easier way, which would be to have um, an, uh, an entity, a grid entity, yes. um, that is a bit less dependent on the existing uh, TSOs, but is doing that type of hopefully more neutral planning. Uh. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, in fairness, what you're talking about here is ensuring that an organization that has really considerable responsibility in the future planning of, of the networks yeah. has really the governance structure that allows them to do it in you know, the most credible and ob objective uh, way that ensures that position for, for a duration, right? Like a, a model that has 
legs, a model that can last. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we see the way that the sector is moving with decarbonization of the gas sector, right? This necessitates uh, a high level of interaction between gas and electricity. And naturally, there will be potentially opportunity costs in the way that you build out those two infrastructures, right? I mean, of course, there are lots of really rigorous and impressive analyses that point to the fact that there are economic and security benefits, for example, of building networks in parallel. It's not necessarily about one or the other, but certainly there needs to be a high level of interaction in the planning between the two, right? And when it's being done, that it's done in the most transparent and credible manner and putting in a governance structure that reflects that, right? And this is, I think, also a little bit about the importance of social buy-in and these mm. kind of things, you know, ensuring that the public has faith in the way that these kind of uh, decisions are being made and uh, to ensure that we're being, yeah, as, uh, as serious and objective and harmonious as possible in how we're doing these things, right? So, yes, it's, it's an interesting proposal. And as you say, it's sort of trying to add, at least as a reader, it was a sort of nuance to this ISO idea. Um, but, yeah, not completely revolutionary, let's say. So, yeah, super interesting. I, I mean, as I said, that was one of the main... Um, one of the main proposals that's received a lot of attention since, but I, I also wanted to get your sort of wider reflections. I mean, sometimes these briefs are just a good way to get a conversation going, right, um, on a given issue. And on the very first page, you say you're looking forward to further discussions. Uh, it's been a couple of months since the brief was published, and I was wondering, have you had any particularly useful feedback or discussions since then, or any particular change you would make if you were publishing the document now? I know you've presented it formally in a few different fora, uh, you mentioned the Belgian presidency. I mean, what sort of feedback have you got? Yeah, so first to say is that some developments already happened um, uh, by European institutions. So already the governance regulation is being assessed, right? Yeah. Um, there has already been a consultation on it. So you feel that there on these national energy and climate plans, things are already moving. We meanwhile have also the final version of the electricity market uh, reform. You have the gas package. So you feel also in these um, um, ongoing files, some of these things are picked up. You, we have another grid action plan that still came out. So you feel that the current commission is not just letting things slide. Right? Really, they're yeah, still, yeah. they're already really doing on it. Industrial policy, security also remains high on the agenda. Um, yeah, so I'm very positive in that sense. You know, um, I, I get the feeling that um, there, many people see the issues similarly. Yeah. Um, in that sense, I'm also happy that we wouldn't rewrite the brief. It seems to be that the big picture, we got it right, but we deliberately stayed at a high level. So that means that, of course, we need to go deeper. Um, and there, I'm also... Um, we have research going on on capacity mechanisms. We didn't talk about it, but we, we that's one of the ideas we put in the brief that they could play a bigger role uh, in the future to guarantee that we have enough investments in, in uh, energy resources. We have the whole offshore issue. We have electric vehicles. Um, also some work that is being done currently by one of our colleagues, Christopher John, on CCS, because also there, there are still many questions and action needed. We have another ongoing research by uh, Lee Hancher and Jean-Michel on long-term contracts. Um, and that connects a bit with the electricity market reform, because uh, from a competition policy view, we've always been very careful in promoting long-term contracts. We, we've sort of discouraged it. So maybe in the future, in a new context with more investment, we need to reconsider that. I saw already drafts of that uh, research. It's very, very interesting. Um, also, another topic we, we, we have in a footnote of this brief is uh, the whole story of Brexit. Right? We have a trade agreement, yep. but everybody thinks that that trade agreement is you know, a bit 
yeah, low ambition in a sense. Yep. And that if we really go for offshore, we might need more cooperation uh, with the UK and not only with the UK, with other third countries like uh, Switzerland. Um, so, yeah, also that is a topic, right? Yeah, Where yeah. I'm sure we will do more. But all in all, um, I think on the big picture and the main ideas, I think um, we, we sort of hit the nail. Uh. <laughs> oh, certainly. And I would really encourage our listeners to take a look. I mean, this is roughly 10 pages. It's not a big document, but even in this fairly wide-reaching discussion, there are still lots left on the table we could have discussed. I mean, you, you mentioned capacity remuneration mechanisms. We have future episodes coming up on things like the electricity market design, which will, of course, be has been a big focus of this commission, but will continue to be relevant for the next one. Uh, so, yeah, as I say, it's been a, a real pleasure to pick over the bones of this one with you. So thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, as I say, I encourage our listeners to go and take a look at the full document and we'll be back with, with future episodes soon. So thanks very much, Leo. Thanks, James. Thank you.